Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, marking Ukrainian Independence Day, discovering the history of this brave nation and finding out what the future holds following Russia's invasion. We'll get in more shortly from Denis Gansha. Denis is a Ukrainian youth delegate to the United Nations. And Zarina Zabriskie, who has been covering the Russian invasion from inside Ukraine for the Byline Times and also Euro Maiden News. Before that, just a quick reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. It is packed with brilliant articles, many of them exclusive to the print edition. We can report without fear or favour and hold the rich and the powerful to account because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So do please subscribe to the Byline Times if you can. You get details of how to subscribe at our website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you very much indeed. Now, modern Ukraine was founded in 1991, but it has a, a very much longer history than that. So before we look forward to the future, I just think it's interesting to explore a little bit of the, the history of the Ukrainian nation. Dennis, uh, I'm saying that Ukraine has got a, a centuries-old history, really, and a centuries-old identity of its own. Sure, you know, the Kiev has been there for more than 1,000 years since the Kiev Rus was one of the most, you know, brave kingdoms, one of the biggest kingdoms in Europe. Of course, our history is here for many, many years. And, you know, I don't really like that people, even in Ukraine, say that we are only 31 years old. We are much older. And this is the Russians who really stole our history. Because we have been in wars with Russia for so many times, because they have for so many times kept Ukrainian independence in its own hands, that today, believe me, the whole country, despite the 10th airstrike alarm per day, and even right now as I'm talking to you, there is an airstrike alarm in the whole country. We are celebrating and we do understand what the price we are paying for this independence and for us, you know, the words, this freedom does not come for free. And I think Zarina will agree with me on this. This is what we really understand in these 180 days. And Zarina, you have family history, family antecedents in Ukraine. How aware were you growing up that it has a history, a, a distinct identity within that region of Europe that, that goes back many, many years? Oh, great question. And also, I want to greet Dennis. And I'm so happy that today we have actually a Ukrainian citizen and Ukrainian national joining us. Because although I do have Ukrainian roots, uh, I'm an American and I'm an observant journalist here. And it's only fair to hear today from Ukrainians about Ukraine. So I'm just here to support and I wish every Ukrainian the happy Independence Day. And to answer your question, Adrian, yes, I was actually really aware of the ancient history, mainly thanks to my parents because they were history buffs. And my mom was very much into folklore and into traveling. So as a kid, we didn't have what Russians or Soviets used to have, 
called dacha, like a cottage house, but we had a small car and we would drive all around. And so my parents would drive around Ukraine and we would go to the Carpathian Mountains uh, and study history there, go to the little folk villages where they make this amazing clay pots and plates and the special tiles uh, that my mom had all over the kitchen. And uh, we would go to Odessa. Of course, I spent every summer in Odessa as a kid. And that has really ancient history. It actually is going back to the ancient Greeks. I'm not going to take us all the way to ancient Greeks. Uh, but as uh, Dennis has mentioned, there's also Kievan Rus, which preceded any other Rus, meaning Russia. And so I was aware of that, but I'm not sure if other people were Dennis, I'd heard growing up of the Cossacks, for example. I was aware of the Cossack people as a distinct group within then the Soviet Union. But the Cossacks are essentially people from Ukraine. Yeah, you're right. And before I, I start talking about the Cossacks, it's really, you know, we're joking inside Ukraine that, uh, you know, that Moscow was originally founded by one of the key rulers, Vladimir and inside Ukraine, we are joking that this was probably the biggest geopolitical error of Ukraine in the 12th century. <laughs> but speaking about the Cossacks, uh, you know, these were the brave men which lived where right now the Russians are occupying our territories in the most like Zaporizhia, in eastern regions. And those people, they were just brave and they were fighting for the independence. Uh, they were joining different armies, for instance, Turkish army and other armies, to fight the Poles, to fight the Russians, to fight many, many people. They were just the free nation. And what is more interesting, the first ever constitution was written by the Ukrainian Cossack called Philip Orlik, just in the beginning of the 18th century. And, you know, the deeper you go inside our history, the more you will know that how many Ukrainians are actually the founders of something interested, uh, how many of them have been connected to this and that. And as, especially when we're speaking about science, we speak about Igor Sikorsky, who is the first inventor of the helicopter. We speak about, you know, our architectures who built the first rockets to fly to the space. And even right now, you know, I, I'm, I'm running very fast, you know, for Ukrainian history because there is a lot to talk but you should know this, that even to many things which you're using right now, like Google, Facebook, uh, m many applications you use in your everyday life, some Ukrainians may have connection to this in creating these apps. And right now, you know, which point I want really to raise here, that it's really important for us as a nation, as we have right now, this is for truth, and unfortunately, we are paying a big price for it. We have a very big credit of soft power inside our hands. And of course, the more the war goes on, the more people we lose and the more attention we lose from the West, where of course, we lose this soft power. And we are talking inside Ukraine how to tell you the most we can about our country because we can do a lot of things. We are a very working nation. We are very resistant. And if you ask me about Cossacks, of course... Even right now, we talk a lot that our army, they're like Cossacks because they're not afraid of anything. They're just going and take the fight. The Russians are inviting them in. 
Sure. And I don't want to dwell too long in a history, Dennis, but I think it is important to emphasize the centuries-long lineage that Ukrainian nationalism has, because for most people, in fact, I'd say pretty much for everybody listening to this, they grew up with a Ukraine that was part of the Soviet Empire, part of the USSR. People in Ukraine were victims of an awful famine in the 1930s, engineered by Stalin. So there was reason for resentment and anger towards the USSR historically amongst Ukrainians. But this sense of self that Ukrainians had had been nurtured and sustained over many decades so that after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, Ukraine emerges as a new nation, but a new nation with a long and proud history and personal identity. I cannot but agree with you because we are probably the nation that has suffered the most in the last, I would say, 122 years, because, you know, we have come up through, like, l- let's get back, like, even to the 1860s. This Russian empire, which were ruled by the king, they even prohibited the usage of the Ukrainian language in, like, writing, press. It can only be used, like, for people communication, but not in writing. After that, you know, we suffer through the First World War because Ukraine was like the battlefield for this war. We suffered the revolution, which was run by Lenin and his people who were trying to devastate Ukraine. We suffered the Holodomor, the famine you mentioned in the 1930s. Then we got the Second World War. And, you know, many people in the West, they tend to to, to say that, oh, my God, Russia lost so much in this war. But it's not Russia who lost so much. It's not Russia which territories was totally occupied. It was Ukraine and Belarus, which were 100% occupied by the Nazi regime. And it was like more than 10 million Ukrainians who were dead because of the World War II. Then we had Chernobyl. Then we like had two revolutions. And for eight years, we already having a war. And even despite all those difficulties, you know, even despite that, of course, we have inside so many problems. You've heard about, like, the corruption Ukraine had. You've heard about that we have so many internal disputes, that we have some problems with democracy. Ukraine is still standing. I don't know if you personally, all the listeners, believed in Ukraine on the 24th of February that we will survive in the first three days of this war. But it is already the sixth month. And I do think that if there are months ahead and years ahead, we will still be standing strong. And Zarele, you live in the United States, but this attachment to the land of your forefathers has drawn you back to Ukraine. And so like Dennis, now you are in Kiev reporting for us and for other outlets as well. It shows the, the hold, the attachment that this country has for people. 
Yes, uh, and I think it would be personal for everyone. It was so for me, and not just during this war. It is sometimes, it's more of a philosophical question and more of an interpersonal relationship with your roots. And I'm a writer, so for me, these matters are important. I do think about them. I do try to explore them and myself and other people. And I have been writing about Ukraine consistently since the beginning of my publishing career, because it started later than my writing career. But my first published book was, in fact, set partially in Odessa and partially in San Francisco. And my third book, short story collection, was called Explosion, with the main short, long story being about Chernobyl, hence the title. And I uh, just kept coming back and again and again in my stories to Ukraine. I have so many stories about different parts of the country. And I, I just wasn't making this connection, Adrian. And sometimes we just have to have this major event that brings you to confront your own personal truth. So it will be a public event, like a war, like the major war in Europe, that in fact brings you to your very own, very intimate, very lyrical feeling of realizing that actually here is Uman, here my great parents were walking. I found the building. I was telling you, Adrian, a few weeks before this show that I just randomly walked into the building in which my ancestors owned a, a business. And in Odessa, I feel like home. So, yeah, that's that's how it worked for me. And I, I, I cannot uh, help but being here and I can't help but fighting for, for this beautiful country. Dennis, how would you assess the state of the war? Oh, no, we're still in it. And this is the problem. Because right now, as I'm talking to you, no one knows what will be in the Union because uh, there are many rumors and going and the president, the general intelligence service of Ukraine and many, many officials have said that today we're, we are waiting for the big shelling from the Russians. And as I have told you that right now there is the airstrike alarm all around Ukraine it's probably, I don't know, the 10th today. It's really one of the records. And this is how Russians greet us with Independence Day. But, you know, really, it's very important to understand that Ukraine's wish list for its Independence Day, it's more weapons, more weapons, more weapons. And I do know that, of course, we have been saying this for so many times, uh, that give us the weapons we need, give us this, give us this. But this is the only way we can beat up Russia because their army is just so big that you can't stop it. You can only win this war with technologies, which unfortunately Ukraine does not have. And when people do say to me that, oh my God, why should I send my money for some military support for some country? I would better send this money to Ukrainian refugees. This is the case when you want to fight with the cause of the war, when you want no refugees to go to your countries, then you want, do not have like, you know, this 1,000 emails that Ukrainians need some help, that they don't have money because they, they are running from the war. The only way to stop this is to actually stop the Russian army, and this only can be done by the Ukrainian army. You'll be aware, Dennis, that in the UK and in other Western European countries, 
inflation is running rampant at the moment. And this is partly caused by shortages caused by the war, shortages of grain, shortages of fuel, which are pushing up prices. Are you concerned that politicians in the West, when they come under pressure from their own constituents to reduce the cost of living pressures, might say, you know what, it's perhaps better for Ukraine to do a deal with Russia to end the conflict so that people in the West can live more comfortably? Of course, we, we do understand that there, there will be a moment for sure that the West will not give us as much support as it's giving right now. And there are already countries like, like Germany who are trying just not to provide as much support as they need. But cases here, like, okay, like we, we signed this like, treaty, like, I don't know, anything you signed with Russia is just, it does not worth it in the paper you sign it on. Okay, you stop the, the fighting. You don't stop the war. You stop the fighting, uh, the active military fighting, like for a year or two. Russia has the time to uh, recollect its forces. Some sanctions will be, of course, will go down, and you receive a new war in several years. This is the question, unfortunately, we need to ask ourselves right now. Are, are we ready to pay the price? Ukrainians are already paying it. And, you know, if you ask me if I want, like, my prices, my prices for heating to go up and not to be in the state of war, of course, I, I will pay all my salary for this. Because, of course, your problems, you consider them more important than any other's problem. This is normal. This is our everyday life. But the case is here. Right now, Russians are threatening the whole world that they can shoot the biggest nuclear power station in Europe. You never know if they do not stop in Ukraine if, we, if they win us. Until we have this chance, we have it, believe me, to win Russia. And what is more important, you have these weapons in your storages. Is the question that you just pass them to us. So this is the case here. Essentially, we have to confront... Putin here and now, because any peace deal will not be worth the paper it's written on, and Putin will not stop at Ukraine. You have just said it like in short what I was saying. Mm. And uh, dear listeners, uh, of course, I know like this may sound like we are asking for a lot, but if there is the chance that you can support us by any way, please do because. I, we do see in Ukraine that, of course, the West is not as interested in Ukraine as it was like five months ago or even four months ago. But we need you. And sometimes we are really asking for a lot, but let's stop this war and make sure that not a single country suffers from Russia anymore. Mm. And just to emphasize that point, Zarina, we were commenting on the podcast on Balan Radio a couple of days ago about the death of Daria Dugina, her father, Dugin. He was the architect of the idea of a Eurasian empire. This is an ideology been adopted by Vladimir Putin, the idea that Russia will expand beyond its borders and will feel entitled to expand beyond its borders. There have been developments since then, and I would like to comment on that, and also in the framework 
of our conversation of Ukrainian Independence Day today and the six months anniversary or mark of the war. Uh, so uh, Dugin, uh, the elder, Father Dugin, uh, was uh, the ideologue of the Russian world. The Russian world is expanding. Putin took this ideology, say, instead of communism, what communism used to mean in the Soviet Union, to fill in the void and to develop on it, to build up the empire, to expand. And so what we see now is what Dugin has been pushing since uh, 90s, actually. And uh, another important thing to know that in the 90s, uh, Sad Dugin was a self-admitted open neo-Nazi. He admitted it. It's, there are multiple documents uh, to it. And uh, we talked about it during our last show. So the uh, reason for Putin that he used to assault Ukraine, to invade Ukraine on the 24th of February, what he highlighted in his speech, was denazification of Ukraine. As we can see here, there is a little conundrum and a paradox because the ideologue of Putin is a Nazi himself, right? And he is claiming denazification of another nation. Now, getting back to the current events, uh, the funeral of Daria Dugina that happened yesterday raised a lot of eyebrows and a lot of questions because the previous reports had it that she was blown and burned uh, and completely charred in the explosion uh, of the car. So the body was unrecognizable. Uh, what the photographs showed in the coffin was on the opposite, uh, completely intact, uh, scaringly, spookishly so, like, say, Edgar Allan Poe type of a corpse. So I won't go any further in these gory details, but uh, to sum up all the versions and the immediate uh, solving of the crime, by now pretty much 90% of all political analysts and experts agree that it most likely was the false flag and the operation and provocation run by the Kremlin to further escalate the situation and to justify the strikes of which Dennis was talking. And this is why we're having all the air raids through the country the whole day. And this is why they're trying to scare the Ukrainian population. And I'm standing right now at Maidan at the main square in Kiev, and I can eyewitness and I can confirm to you that absolutely no one looks scared. There are people sitting at a cafe sipping their drinks. So he's failing even at that. And Zarina, how is Independence Day being celebrated? Because I've been hearing news reports in the UK suggesting that people in Ukraine are being discouraged from gathering in large numbers, just in case they provide a target for Putin's army. That's true. And people are, I suppose, being careful. But you also have to know Ukrainian people. They are, as everybody knows, not easily scared. So, well, there probably would be much bigger numbers. And I know there. I was here in Ukraine 
uh, last year for Independence Day, and it was amazing. It was, you know, fireworks and flowers and music concerts. Right now, we don't have that, but there's quite a number of people dressed in yellow and blue and beautiful embroidered shirts and a lot of children and everybody's carrying flags and everybody's walking around these burned-down tanks in the main street. And there are a lot of art installation and music and they, they feel is celebratory and determined, I would say. And I would check with Dennis what he thinks about that. Uh, you know, even Boris Johnson is walking <laughs> near those tanks today, like with the President Zelensky. You know, the case is like here, but generally, the, usually this was a holiday day for the whole country. But today is the typical working day for a lot of people. And I know most of my friends, including me, we are continuing our work. We didn't have any vacations in those six months. We are just working and working and working. And you should also know that in some regions today, it's even like the whole day curfew because of the risk of the provocations, which can go on by the Russian diversants or military. And, you know, the feeling in the air today, it's like, it's not like the party which it used to be, because, like, even in the last eight years, when we were celebrating the Independence Day, this is hard to call the party, because most of the day is dedicated to remembering those fighting for our independence. And today, this sounds even more special when third part of the country is occupied. Many Ukrainians are celebrating the Independence Day, not at home. It's hard to call it a joyful day, believe me. Mm. And, Dennis, the war has, to some extent anyway, settled into a kind of attritional phase in that Russia has gained a significant amount of territory. Occasionally, Ukraine fights back and regains territory. But it seems as though it's likely to be a long-running conflict unless there is some sudden unexpected breakthrough that we just at the moment can't foresee. Honestly, is that how you look at it? You know, I'm not the war analyst myself, and I do not know nothing in the war tactics. But, of course, from what we see, uh, the war war front has not been so active as it has been in March. Right now, this is mostly the war of technologies, it's the war of artillery, and it's the war of resources. I would say, really, that no one, like, or a small percentage inside the country, believes that this war will go for years. Like, a lot of people believe in this. And everyone is sure that this war will not end this year, and we, we, we will have one of the toughest winters coming to us because we don't know what will be with our heating. It's not because we don't have enough resources. It's because Russia has destroyed a lot of infrastructure. And this can lead to the deaths of thousands of people because they can just be frozen up to death inside their flats. You know, it's hard to predict. Like one psychiatrist wrote in his book that like, he, he was the, the victim of the Nazi regime and he was staying in this like, filtration camp. And he said that the first who, who died, this was the people who thought that this will end fast. 
The second who died, these were the people who thought that it will never end. And only those survived who were just living their life day by day. So they were doing something every day. And this is like most of the country right now. We are not thinking what will be there tomorrow. We are not thinking about what there will be in a month. We are just living today's day. Listen, Dennis, I know that many UK listeners will be standing in solidarity with you and many listeners around the world, both to Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast. And we salute the courage and the resilience of the Ukrainian people. Zarina, did you want to have a, a little comment just before we finish? Yes, sure. And uh, I'm so happy again that Dennis could come and talk to us from the point of view of the Ukrainian who's been in the country living through the eight years of this war and comment on that because I'm commenting from my experience on the only six months of the war and that is already exhausting and trying. But having said that, I guess the one thing I want to add, I had a very moving experience today at Khrushchev where I met with the wives of Azov Battalion, wives and mothers and sisters and families. And I have uh, interviewed quite a lot of family members of those brave people, of the heroes that are now being held prisoners of war in Russia. Some of them are in Russia and uh, supposedly in, even in Moscow, and some of them are in Alinivka, which is the prison in Donetsk occupied territory, which was recently uh, on the 29th of July hit in attack that Russians claimed was a Ukrainian missile and that most experts agreed was, again, another Russian provocation. So a lot of these women are not even sure if their loved ones are alive. They can't find them on the list of the wounded or killed. And they just keep trying and trying to find them, to locate them. And they plead for the world to help them, to bring back the defenders. We're talking about the defenders of Azovstal, this infamous plant in Mariupol that is one of the most heroic page uh, in the history of this century. And if you get to know the story, if you get to know these women, it is so moving. So I would call on everyone who is listening to help to stand by to learn more about what happened there and resist the what is called the Mariupol Tribunal, for which the Russians are now building human cages in Mariupol Philharmonic Society Theater. So I wanted to bring it up. There is a lot of videos, uh, interviews. I'm writing an article now based on these interviews. These are amazing people, amazing families, and let's, as a world community, help them to save the lives of their heroes and defenders. Zarina, thank you. And if you want to follow all of Zarina's writings for various outlets, do follow her on Twitter, at Zarina Zabriski. She is a regular contributor to the Byline Times. You can read her work at bylinetimes.com and in our brilliant monthly newspaper, which helps to fund this podcast and Byline Radio. So please take out a subscription to the Byline Times if you can. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Thank you to Zarina. Thank you to Dennis. Happy Independence Day to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Slava Ukraine. Royal Slava.